0: Wyatt Earp, Billy the Kid, Doc Holliday, Jesse James, Wild Bill Hickok. These are the names of legends. Names I think most people, even those with no interest in Old West history, will find familiar. But for every one of these guys, there were a dozen others who were every bit as deadly and capable with a firearm. If not more so, men who didn't flinch in the face of death. Men who knew the smell of the black powder smoke and the crack of a bullet snapping past their heads. Men who, for whatever reason, are largely lost to history, or at very least, just not that well-known. Men like El Fago Baca, the young store clerk who pinned on a fake mail-order badge and single-handedly took on an overwhelming force of gunmen. The over-30-hour gunfight that ensued is considered, by some, to be the most lopsided of the Wild West, and all at the tender age of 19. And don't you worry your pretty little head, none. The rest of El Fago's life was chock-full of excitement as well. The man would go on to be tried several times for murder, get involved in the Mexican Revolution, work as a sheriff, a lawyer, a detective, a district attorney, a Prohibition-era speakeasy bouncer, and hell, even a school superintendent. And yes, his life would inspire a Disney TV series not too long after his death. According to one biographer, El Fago Baca was, quote, controversial. He drank too much, he talked too much, he had a weakness for wild women, and he was often arrogant. And, of course, he showed no compunction about killing people. And when it came to killing, El Fago made no bones about it, saying, quote, If a man has it in mind to kill me, I made it my business to kill him first. Sounds like the kind of guy we like around these parts. Who was El Fago Baca? Well, put on that sombrero and find out on this newest El Gato Nueve Vidas, I Can't Speak Spanish worth a damn episode of Bloody Beaver's Wild West Extravaganza. (laughs) Como estas, bitches? My name's Josh, and I'm the host of this monstrosity of a podcast. And today, boys and girls, we are talking about the one and only El Fago Baca. Now, as I touched on a moment ago, he is one of those lesser-known Wild West characters. Lesser-known to me, at least. If you're of a certain age, you're probably at least familiar with the name. As a Disney TV series called The Nine Lives," of El Fago Baca aired from 1958 to 1960. Or maybe you're from New Mexico or you just passed through the tiny town of Reserve New Mexico and paused to visit the bronze statue portraying a defiant El Fago stepping out of a half-destroyed shack six-gun in hand. Familiar with the man or not? Stick around because I think you're going to find him pretty dang interesting. And FYI, this isn't going to be a long, detailed account or even a very deep dive into the life of El Fago Baca. If I'm not careful with this podcast, I can bog myself down thinking that each one of these episodes needs to just be as extensively researched as possible or I have to offer up some sort of new information or new approach to the subject matter. But Daddy ain't no documentarian. Like I always say, I'm just a guy with a $50 microphone and an internet connection. So this is just going to be a fun little Bloody Beaver quickie in order to at least somewhat familiarize ourselves with the seemingly fearless El Fago Baca. Now with that preamble out of the way... Let's get it started in here, Wild West Camp style. Mm-hmm. Alfego Baca was born in February of 1865 in the central New Mexico town of Socorro. His parents, Francisco and Juana Maria, would move the family to Kansas just a couple of years after Alfego's birth, affording Baca a better education than a boy could then get down New Mexico way. By the way, uh, per usual, my pronunciations are going to be horrendous. So if you're a Spanish speaker, sorry. I took Spanish for three years in high school, and I've worked around Hispanic people my entire life. You'd think I'd be better at it by now, but I'm not. However, in my defense, I did have to take speech classes as a little kid. And now look at me. You know, everybody always makes a big deal about Joe Biden overcoming a stutter. Yeah, well, come at me when he's got his own podcast that tens of people listen to. Okay? Back to the story. I did find a source claiming that El Fago was kidnapped by Native Americans at the age of one, and then quickly returned to his parents, something he himself allegedly would claim was yet another example of his lifelong streak of good luck. No idea how true this is, though, and regardless, it does appear that Baca spent the majority of his first 15 years in the mostly lily-white town of Topeka, Kansas. Unfortunately, tragedy would strike the Baca family, and over the course of just a few weeks, El Fago's mother, a brother, and a sister would all pass away. And I wasn't able to find out exactly what caused these deaths or when exactly they happened, but a good guess would be around the year 1880, as that's the same time that Fago and his daddy would move back down to New Mexico territory. Speaking of which, his father, Francisco Baca, wasn't no shrinking violet either. Once back in New Mexico, he'd become a lawman out of Las Lunas. Ended up killing a member of a prominent family while on duty, an action that landed the elder Baca behind bars. El Fago, then just 15 years of age and fearing a lynch mob, ended up breaking his dad out of jail and helping him flee to the safety of Texas. So right off the bat, we know El Fago comes from a tough stock, or at least stock that wasn't afraid to use a gun. And we know young Baca, even at the age of 15, wasn't lacking in nerve. As you can probably guess by the names El Fago, Francisco, and Maria, the Bacas were of Hispanic descent. And the Baca family goes way back into Nueve Mexico, hundreds of years in fact. They called that land home back when it still belonged to Spain. By the 1880s, New Mexico was still just a territory, but the Hispanics that lived there were U.S. citizens, thanks to the 1848 Treaty of Hidalgo. But that didn't necessarily mean that they were treated as such, which brings us to the little village of Upper Frisco Plaza. Frisco, or San Francisco Plaza, was really just a string of three villages on the San Francisco River in eastern New Mexico, all within about a mile and a half of each other in present-day Catron County. Back then, you had Lower Frisco, Middle Frisco, and Upper Frisco. The only one still in existence is Upper, now known as Reserve New Mexico. Still a tiny town, by the way, with a population of less than 300. And although you just heard me mention Catron County, way back when, that whole area was part of Socorro County. Whose county seat is? You guessed it. Socorro. The same town El Fago was born in, and the town that he returned to as a teenager. Now, back in those days, Socorro County took up a huge swath of land. We're talking roughly south of Albuquerque and just west of the Mescalero Reservation all the way to the Arizona border. Now, this used to be Apache land, and even during our story's timeline, it was still a rough and wild country. Butch Cassidy lived there for a while, and even the elusive Apache kid was known to pass through from time to time. But by the 1880s, it was mostly cattle country. And as such, a whole lot of Texas cowboys had drifted on in to seek employment at the many ranches that dotted Socorro County. Now, Upper Frisco Plaza, now known as Reserve, was also called Milligan's Plaza back in the day, thanks to a drinking establishment of the same name. It's also where all those Texas cowboys would come to blow off a little bit of steam. You know, get a little drunk, maybe do some gambling, some fighting, which is to be expected, right? Being a cowboy is hard, dangerous work. Gotta get loose every now and then and let that freak flag fly. You know what I mean? Gotta let that monkey out of the cage. Besides, we were all young ones. You know how it goes. I'm kind of reminded of that uh, Blue Edmondson song, $50 and a flask of crown. Unfortunately, the Socorro County cowhands began getting a little bit too wild. A lot too wild, actually. As I briefly touched on earlier, the Hispanics who had long called this area home weren't really considered real citizens. They were just simply Mexicans. And that was probably the nicest thing they were ever called by those cowboys. By the way, going forward on this episode, if I refer to somebody as a Mexican... Just know that I'm doing so for the historical perspective. In the same way, the term "Indian" was once used to describe Native Americans. You know, the townspeople of Upper Frisco called themselves Mexicans as well. It's what they identified as. There was no such thing as Latin X back in those days. And the more I read about El Fago Baca, the more I'm positive he himself would have a violent reaction to being referred to as Latin X. Anyway, when I say these cowhands were getting out of control, hey, we're really getting out of control. They were destroying property, they were shooting chickens, not to mention shooting holes in the roof of Milligan's saloon, just flat out terrorizing the locals. And for the most part, they got away with it. I mean, who the hell was going to stand up to them? Tomas down at the stables? Juanita the midwife? There was no wide Earp or Bat Masterson or Bass Reeves walking the beat in Upper Frisco. Matter of fact, there was no real law at all, other than one so-called deputy, a guy named Pedro Saraceno. Who was really just a shopkeep who happened to moonlight as a peace officer on occasion? Nowhere in his job description did it list taking on scores of drunken cowboys. Cowboys who took to riding up and down the streets, ignorantly yelling out phrases like Remember the Alamo. And then there's the incident of the young woman who was lassoed and taken out of town, never to be seen again. And finally, there was poor El Burro. No, not a donkey, a man. A mentally challenged guy simply known as Burro. A group of cowboys got liquored up, and uh, well, they held the poor bastard down on the bar at Milligan's place and they castrated him. Yes, they castrated him. And when a bystander named Epitacio Martinez tried to intervene, those drunken drovers tied him to a pole and used him for target practice. Fortunately for him, they were too damn inebriated to do a whole hell of a lot of damage. Four of their bullets found Martinez, but none of them hit any of his vitals and he would live. Now, at this point, that timid so called deputy Saracino decided to ride the 130 miles east of Socorro to plead for help, for someone, anyone, to come to the aid of those poor citizens of Frisco. And somehow our very own El Fago Baca, then just 19 years old, and working as a clerk in his uncle's store, would answer this call. Now there's a few versions of what happened, but long story short, El Fago pinned on a fake badge that he had ordered in the mail, you know, basically the equivalent of a little kid's toy badge you would buy at Walmart, mounted up and rode west toward Frisco Plaza with a Colt forty-five resting on his hip. Now, when I first read this, I got some serious Dwight Schrute volunteer sheriff's deputy vibes from this guy. But what happened next would vanquish all similarities to the bumbling Dunder Mifflin paper salesman and bare fact connoisseur. Upon arriving at Upper Frisco, El Fago would waste no time in arresting a drunk cowboy who was shooting off his gun and acting a damn fool. Something that really hurts my feelings considering the current cost and lack of availability of ammunition right now. What's up with that? Any of you gun nuts out there that uh, might know when ammo is going to be available again, and I can stop hoarding my precious stock of 9mm, please email me and let me know. BloodyBeaverPodcast at gmail.com. Anyway, back to El Fago. Now, this cowboy he arrested was an employee of rancher John Slaughter, a.k.a. Texas John Slaughter, a guy who definitely deserves his own episode of Bloody Beaver Podcast. The Louisiana-born Slaughter was a veteran of the Civil War and the Texas Rangers before he took to ranching in the late 1870s. He'd eventually become Sheriff of Cochise County, Arizona, and even helped track down Geronimo. But back in 1884, he was just ranching, as far as I know, and this Charlie McCarthy character was simply one of his many employees. Like I said, Baca arrested the inebriated buckaroo and hauled him before what passed as a justice of the peace there in Frisco, who, probably not wanting any trouble, simply fined McCarthy five bucks and sent him on his way. And as you can imagine, he went right back on to drinking and shooting off his gun. Now, Fago Baca didn't appreciate this too much. The teenage five foot seven inch tall, quote unquote Mexican, quote unquote lawman with the fake ass badge went and arrested McCarthy again. The only problem was things didn't go quite as smoothly as the first time and the cowboy did have friends just as El Fago was trying to apprehend the man McCarthy grabbed a pistol out of the holster of his foreman a guy by the name of young Parham and tried to use it on Baca but to no avail El Fago wrenched the revolver from his grip and put the tipsy herder under guard in a private residence to once again await the justice of the peace and this didn't sit too well for the Slaughter Ranch cowboys Parham, the foreman, told Baca to release McCarthy immediately. Find him, do what you gotta do, but let the man go. Hell, we got work to do. To which Baca replied, nuh-uh, nope. Now here's where things get dicey. Parham wasn't alone. He was being backed up by cowboys from the slaughter ranch. How many, I can't say for certain. And I don't think El Fago was alone either, not at this point. In one source I found Baca had raised a small armed posse when he went to go arrest McCarthy the second time. I assumed just some of the long-suffering citizens of Frisco Plaza. Anyway, it didn't matter. You don't get to be foreman for John Bygot's slaughter unless you got some grit, which it looks like Parham had. He demanded once again that McCarthy be released. Tensions were mounting on both sides, and the cowboys soon lost patience and began to close in on the building where Baca was guarding their wayward companiero. Guns drawn, by the way. Upon seeing the weapons, El Fago ordered the advancing cowhands to halt. Which, I'm sure, got him some not-so-nice words thrown his way. Some phrases that were probably just a tad bit culturally insensitive. By the way, this wasn't Baca's first run-in with the vigilante justice. A few years prior, he witnessed his own brother lynched by some cowboys, men just like these crowding in on him, and he'd be damned if he'd let these waitos do the same. He called out to them, saying he was going to give them a count of three, telling them if they didn't clear out by the time he got to three, he would open fire. This warning went unheeded and true to his word. Upon yelling out three, Fago opened up with that Colt forty-five of his. One round shattered a cowboy's knee and another caught Parham's horse, causing it to rear and fall over on top of the slaughter ranch foreman. Now, I did read other versions that have the horse throwing him. Either way, the results were the same. Young Parham, the respected foreman of the slaughter ranch, lay dead in the street. Oh, boy. chingao! As soon as the smoke cleared and it was determined that Parham had indeed gone on to meet his lord and savior, another Calhan rode hell for leather to the nearby W.S. Ranch. Once there, he told wild tales of a Mexican uprising and the wanton slaughter of Americans. The way he was acting, you'd think General Santa Ana himself had been resurrected and was leading an army of walking dead Mexicans across the border. As you can imagine, this caused quite a bit of alarm. The following day, the W.S. foreman James Cook took a crew of his own Calhans and headed to Frisco Plaza hoping to help the slaughterhands put down this dangerous revolt. Obviously, when they arrived, they learned the truth. There weren't no insurrection, just one ballsy Mexican kid with a fake badge, a dead cowboy, and another in custody. And before we go any further, I think it's important to point out the role that many ranchers and cowboys played when it came to keeping the peace, or more accurately, administering their own brand of justice, especially there in New Mexico. I was recently reading about how the famous New Mexican rancher John Chisholm and his cowhands, his cowboys, would implement summary justice. Almost as if it was just part of the job. Hell, it was part of the job if you were a line rider. I mean, if you couldn't stop or deter would-be thieves, then you weren't cut out for that line of work. Chisholm himself once spoke about how several of his cowboys strung up a fellow cowhand for killing a well-liked foreman. Someone just like young Parham, who Baca just killed. There was another situation where Chisholm's cowhands were executing justice once again. And another man asked the rancher, why didn't he just let the authorities over in Las Vegas handle it? To which Chisholm replied that it wasn't his business to interfere in the Cowboys' form of justice. And besides, it'd take too much time to ride all the way to Las Vegas. So as you can see, there was most definitely a culture surrounding the Cowboys handling shit their own way. So them going after El Fago wasn't exactly unprecedented. That said, they did somewhat attempt to do things under the cover of law. They hit up Milligan's Saloon and took to drinking, of course, and waiting for an actual real lawman to show up, a white one. In this case, the law came in the form of a very unimpressive deputy, Dan Betchel. According to one source, he and his group arrived that evening full of zeal and whiskey. So at this point, we've got the Slaughter Ranch crew, the W.S. crew, Deputy Dan and his band of drunks, and who knows how many other cowboys that trickled in from other ranches. And they were all in a big race to see which one of them could drink up Milligan's supply of whiskey the fastest. Finally, the justice of the peace showed up. Now, I do not know if this was the same JP who fined McCarthy before or not. This guy here was named William W. Wilson. And upon his arrival, El Fago did the right thing and turned McCarthy over. Wilson then quickly tried the man right there in Milligan's saloon. Tried him, fined him, and let him go just that quick pretty much exactly what would have happened in the first place, but unfortunately things had escalated and now there was a dead cowboy who happened to have some very pissed off and very drunk friends. They demanded that the justice of the peace issue a warrant for Baca's arrest, which he did, along with deputizing at least two of them, Jerome Wadsworth and William Hearn. By the way, Fago had been in Milligan's initially, but once he saw the way the worm was turning, he quietly slipped out a side door and beat feet to a nearby Hakal. Now Hakal Spelled J-A-C-A-L, is kind of a Mexican shack, sort of like an adobe meets a dugout. Imagine a kind of a picket house made up with sun-baked mud and the rest just wooden poles and kind of filled in with mud and grass. Evidently, the Native Americans of the Southwest utilized these hukals long before Europeans showed up, and once they did, they took to using them too. Probably be a cozy little shelter during a storm, but there ain't no hukal that can stop a slug fired from a colt or a Winchester as El Fago Baca would soon learn when the newly deputized cowboys and all their friends found him. And it wouldn't take long for them to find him. Upper Frisco wasn't exactly the type of bustling metropolis that one could get lost in. Once the angry drovers had the Hakao surrounded and figured out Baca wasn't planning on showing himself, the deputized Hearn told the others he'd, quote, Get that little Mexican out, and marched boldly to the door demanding El Fago surrender. Come on, just surrender so we can lynch you. Why won't you just let us murder you? When Baca didn't respond, Hearn took to kicking the entrance down. Or at least he tried to. Until Elfago finally had enough and gave his answer in the form of 245 slugs sent straight through the door and into Hearn's guts. He would die within the hour. In the meantime, all his cowboy friends immediately opened up fire on Baca, their bullets slicing through the thin walls of the call like knife through butter. And what followed is, according to one source, the highest volume gunfight in the history of the Old West. Now, I'm not too sure about that. Matter of fact, I'm positive that it was not the uh, highest volume gunfight in the history of the Old West. I also mentioned earlier that it's considered to be one of the most lopsided gunfights. The reason being is the cowboys that surrounded El Fago that day were estimated to number 80 strong. That's 80 against one. That is pretty damn lopsided. Here's the thing, though. Nobody knows that for sure. El Fago claimed 80. Others claimed that the real number was more like 12. Probably the truth lies somewhere in the middle, like it almost always does. Doesn't matter, though. Even if there was just 12, those aren't good odds, either. The only issue I have with the statement that it was the most lopsided or highest-volume gunfight is because I think people are forgetting the last stand of Nate Champion. He was most certainly surrounded by well over 80 men up there in Wyoming. If I remember correctly, it was closer to, like, 200. I did an episode on Nate a long time ago, uh, episode 14, if you're interested. And I will address the number of assailants on Baca again later on in this episode. But for now, it's 1884 and the Johnson County War had not yet occurred and Nate Champion was still alive and well. And a young man by the name of El Fago Baca was hugging the floor as God only knows how many rifles and pistols were raining down hell on him. Don't get it twisted, though. El Fago Baca didn't spend this whole little standoff on the ground with his dick in the dirt. That little Mexican could give just as good as he could get, popping up sporadically and returning fire of his own. He sent a round through the hat of cowhand Charlie Moore, quickly followed by another that barely missed the man's face. Another one of Baca's bullets found the wall just inches away from the head of W.S. foreman James Cook. Suffice it to say, these would-be vigilantes weren't full of enough liquid courage just yet to organize a charge and make targets of themselves. Instead, they were content with just taking pot shots at the Hakal every now and then and every so often mustering up a steady rate of fire, pretty much just hoping to get lucky. And the crazy thing is, they should have succeeded. Like I said, the thin walls of a Hakal are in no way a barricade. All those pistols were punching through it like paper. So why the hell was not Del Fago Baca so much as wounded? Well, some claim it was a miracle. More on that later. According to some versions, the Cowboys would try to torch the Hakal, but the fire wouldn't take. Soon enough, the sun began to set and things quieted down. In fact, things got so damn quiet that the Cowboys began thinking maybe they had succeeded. They weren't hearing a peep out of El Fago, and, well, they figured he was El Dedo. (laughs) However, there wasn't a man among them who was feeling froggy enough to go investigate. Nah, they'd wait till morning and then go check. Surely, come sun up, they'd find their dead Mexican riddled with holes. Funny thing, though, the next morning, the delicious smell of cooking food wafted from the Hakal. Not only was Baca not dead, but all that fighting got the young man a little hungry around the mouth. He fired up a little stove and fried himself up some tortillas and bacon before the morning fighting would commence. i got to imagine him just calmly cooking breakfast like that pissed off his assailants more than him being alive. Here they were nursing hangovers or taking some hair of the dog thinking they probably got their man. And it turns out he was just in there casually fixing himself a morning snack. Wasn't too long before the cowboys answered this insult in the form of gunfire. Now, to the herder's credit, one of them would work up enough nerve to approach the Hakal using a cast iron cover from a stove as a shield, a mistake he would not make twice. The man got a little too close for Baca's liking, and when he peeked over his makeshift bulwark, El Fago let loose a couple rounds, one of which grazed the man's head and sent him running and hollering, he killed me, he killed me. Believe it or not, this highly amused, those other cowboys, causing them to break out in laughter. A strange thing was happening there in Frisco Plaza. First, this teenage lone Mexican decides to take on a mob of white cowboys, something that was completely unheard of in those parts. And then the Hispanic citizens, who did outnumber the cowboys, flipped the script a little bit and surrounded them. Now, they weren't being openly hostile, but they were yelling out encouragement for Baca, as well as a few threats every now and then to these no longer quite as bold cowhands. And this did cause the W.S. foreman, James Cook, to kind of pull in the reins somewhat. As the de facto leader of the mob, he did kind of sort of attempt to de-escalate things. Taking a different tactic, he sent a message in Spanish to Baca, maybe thinking that there was a little bit of miscommunication. Obviously, there was none, and El Fago answered this newest call to surrender with some gunfire of his own. Not sure which aggravated Baca the most. You know, their assumption that he couldn't speak any English, or them thinking he was dumb enough to just give up and let him hang him. No, sir. More gunfire was exchanged, and by the end of the second day, El Fago was still holed up in that jacal and still very much alive. Finally, that afternoon, a deputy sheriff from Socorro named Frank Rose came riding into town with one of El Fago's amigos, who'd gone for help, Francisquito Naranjo. This is right around the time that that other deputy, Betchel, finally poured himself off the bar stool and decided to make an appearance. The damn fool had set out the entire gunfight thus far, could tend just to lounge there in Milligan's and get his drunk on. And that's exactly where Sheriff Rose sent him back to, having no use for the man and realizing that the burden of simmering things down now lay squarely on his shoulders alone. Now, eventually, between he and Naranjo's urgings, El Fago was persuaded to emerge from the Hakal, covered in dust and debris, revolver in each hand. Revolvers he refused to relinquish. He was led back to Milligan's saloon, pistols at the ready, where, get this, he was placed under the guard of the WS Cowboys. <laughs> I guess the idea was they were less inclined to lynch him because it wasn't their Foreman who had been killed. The main threat being the Slaughter Boys. And also there's the fact that Baca was ready with those revolvers of his. You know, nobody was itching to try him face to face. The next day, November 1st, El Fago accompanied Deputy Rose and Naranjo back to Socorro with an escort of WS Cowboys. Who Baca very smartly demanded ride 30 yards ahead of him. 19 years old or not, he weren't nobody's fool and he damn sure wasn't trying to accidentally get shot in the back. Not a bad idea, considering there were two separate plans to ambush and kill Baca during this trip, but both were foiled due to bad planning and corn mash whiskey. Alfago Baca did wind up spending a couple of months in jail there in Socorro. He was tried twice for the murder of Parham and acquitted twice, and that little three-day gunfight there in Frisco was just the beginning of a long and colorful life. His next job would be that of a legitimate deputy up in Albuquerque, finally traded in that mail order badge for a real one, and eventually he would become the elected sheriff of Socorro County. Now, the sheriff, El Fago, was more than a little unconventional. For instance, if there were prisoners who he felt were given unreasonable sentences, he'd just simply let them go. Also, when he was elected, there was this huge stack of outstanding warrants. Instead of just going out and rounding up all these bad guys one by one, he sent them letters. Letters that read something along the lines of, This is El Fago Baca. I have a warrant for your arrest. Please come in by such and such date and give yourself up. If you don't, then I'll assume you intend to resist arrest, and I will feel justified in shooting your damn gringo ass on sight. Now, obviously, I'm loosely paraphrasing here, but you get the gist of it. Most of the offenders did turn themselves in voluntarily. After his stint as sheriff, Baca would work as both a lawyer and a private detective. A funny little incident from his lawyering days. He had this client that got arrested for murder, over an hour away. Upon hearing the news, El Fago wired his client saying, Be there in an hour, with three witnesses. <laughs> Something tells me that Senor Baca, attorney of law, kept witnesses on retainer. In 1906, he moved back to Albuquerque and went into the newspaper business, publishing the Spanish language La Opinion Publica, and helped form New Mexico's first chapter of the Spanish-American Alliance. He even ran for state congress in 1912 when New Mexico gained its statehood, but he just didn't get enough votes. Now, back around this time, Mexico was experiencing a revolution. A revolution comprised of many different factions, some of which El Fago Baca would be involved with. As opposed to just sitting on the sidelines and seeing how everything panned out in the motherland, Baca became the official U.S. representative of Victoriano Huerta's Mexican government. He even helped bust one of Huerta's generals, a guy named Joe Salazar, out of an Albuquerque jail. Elfago was arrested for this, but the charges did not stick. The charges never stuck when it came to alfego Baca. And of course, his legend only grew. Hell, he even had the pleasure of meeting Pancho Villa around this time. Not only did he meet him, but he stole one of his fancy rifles. An action that caused Pancho to place a $30,000 bounty on the old lawman's head. Of course, the bounty was never collected, and Baca would pose, as an old man, with that same rifle, long after Pancho Villa was gone. Now, the man he backed in Mexico, Huerta, didn't come out on top. And there was this other revolutionary, Celestino Otero, who decided to try to squeeze some money from El Fago. some about his helping Baca bust General Salazar out of jail. The two men met up in El Paso, things got heated, and they both went for their guns. Otero got a shot off, grazing Baca's groin. But unfortunately for him, the 50-year-old El Fago still had it and was able to put two rounds in Otero's heart. Another incident that occurred in Baca's later years that highly amused me was his run-in with a gangster by the name of Numero Ocho. I shit you not. So here's what happened. Baca took a job as a head bouncer in this Juarez nightclub called Tivoli. Now this place was popping, as the kids like to say. It wasn't just some Old West saloon. It was a casino, a bar, a theater, all rolled into one and they hired El Fago for the weight of his name. The idea being that the gangs would stop trying to shake him down if they brought in somebody with Baca's reputation. Well, the name El Fago Baca didn't impress this numero ocho guy. He and his gang considered themselves bad hombres, and they started talking about how they'd make quick work of this old has-been lawman from New Mexico. Sure enough, El Fago heard tell these threats and not wanting to just sit around and wait, he went looking for Mr. Ocho. When he found the gangster, the first thing he asked him was what kind of a man has a damn number for a name? A rhetorical question that was quickly followed by Baca open palm pimp slapping the ever-loving shit out of Numero Ocho. Wild West pimp style. That's right. Once again, y'all, I'm not making this up. He slapped Ocho in the face before he had a chance to answer. Then he punched him in the gut, and then, with Numero Ocho doubled over and trying to turn around, El Fago kicked the man so hard in the ass that it lifted him up off the ground. Go ahead now and tell me what you're going to do to me. Tell me like you've been telling everybody else. Baca hollered at the gangster. Nothing. Silence. Not only did Numero Ocho not do a damn thing, neither did any of his fellow gang members. And El Fago Baca would never have any more trouble from this would-be tough guy ever again. Dude is well over the hill at this point in his life. And I've seen pictures of an older El Fago Baca. He ain't exactly the epitome of physical fitness. But the man was just tough as nails slapping around gangsters like they're some sort of a damn Trump piñata, robbing Pancho Villa, getting in gunfights all over the age of 50 and still coming out on top in every single instance. Now, at some point following his experience down there in Frisco, Baca would get married and have one son and five daughters. Later in life, however, it's said that he started hitting the bottle a little too hard, and as we briefly touched on prior, he became a bit of a womanizer. Despite these indiscretions, El Fago Baca would live a long, long time passing peacefully in Albuquerque on August 27, 1945, at the age of 80. If you care to pay your respects, you can find him resting at Albuquerque's Sunset Memorial Park. The man was born at the tail end of the Civil War and died at the tail end of World War II, just a few weeks after we dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Think about that for a second. The Civil War to Nagasaki. What an amazing span of time to be alive riding horses and covered wagons to nuclear damn weapons. Now I guess I should mention that not everybody loved El Fago. Pat Garrett's biographer Leon Claire Metz called Baca a braggart, an insult that I find kind of rich. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. But yeah, okay, Baca for sure wasn't perfect, and he most certainly inflated his actions particularly in regards to that gunfight all those years prior in Frisco Plaza. And his life wasn't without controversy, such as his friendship and the support he gave for Albert Hall of the Teapot Dome scandal fame. With that said, El Fago did a lot of work for his fellow Hispanics and donated his time and services to the poor. And he never lacked ambition to be a public servant. Hell, even considered running for governor shortly before his death. Speaking of governors, former governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson, once said this of El Fago, quote, the story of El Fago Baca demonstrates a man's will to preserve justice in a land in time of rampant corruption and bullying. Baca's bravery instilled hope to the native New Mexican people who upheld the laws of the land and refused to succumb to racial injustice. End quote. As for Baca himself, he was quoted as saying, In those days I was a self-made deputy. I had a badge I made for myself. And if they didn't believe I was a deputy, they'd better believe it, because I'd make them believe it. This from a man who once claimed that outlaws could hear his steps from blocks away. And I personally found it interesting that El Fago became a defense attorney. You know, he went from locking people up in jail to helping them to avoid it. And out of the 30 men that he defended in court, only one of them got sent to the pen. That's not a bad record. Okay, so as far as that famous gunfight in Frisco, like I said, he, along with others, claimed that there were 80 cowboys gunning for him. And a lot of articles you find on that fight will say over 4,000 rounds were fired into that hukal, with nearly 400 bullet holes in the door alone. But is any of this true? Well, I kind of like what a guy named Richard Deree wrote about Baca in an article titled, The Life and the Truth of Elfago Baca. You can find a link uh, to this article in this episode's show notes. Duree writes, quote, Baca's early interest in the law and his powerful reputation led him into a long and successful career in both law and politics. As such, he had a ready and willing audience to his glib tongue. And as many of the other Old West characters did, he was not above embellishing his story. The dozen or so shooters at Frisco Plaza soon became 80. The one casualty of the shootout became four. One wounded man became eight. The 400 or so fired rounds became 4,000 with over 380 bullet holes in the door, end quote. So who the hell knows how many gunmen were involved or how many rounds were fired? Doesn't really change much though, right? Elfago Baca stood down an angry mob and he came out on top. He taught the people of Socorro County that they didn't have to just put up with being treated any which way. And he put those cowboys on notice, just like he said he would, showing them that there was at least one Mexican in that country who was afraid of him. His actions in Frisco had made him a hero for everyone in that part of New Mexico who believed in law and order. And hell, even the cowboys who once wanted him dead had a grudge of respect for the young Hispanic lawman. Matter of fact, the W.S. ranch foreman, James Cook, remember him? Decades later, he sent El Fago a photograph with an inscription that read, To El Fago Baca, in memory of that day in Frisco. And that's about all we've got, but I'm going to leave you all with two interesting anecdotes uh, when it comes to El Fago. The first is a quote that, uh, well, let's just say it's got a whole lot of truth to it. Baca once said, quote, if you think about punching someone in the face, if wronged, punch them in the face. If not, you'll feel self-conscious about it the rest of your life, end quote. Woo! Do I even have to explain that? Now, obviously, don't go out and punch nobody. Neither I nor Bloody Beaver Podcast endorse or suggest that you go attack anybody. It is an interesting thought, though. I, I just really like that quote. Another El Fago Baca story goes that one day he and a guy were driving around through Socorro County, and this was later on in life when El Fago was an older man, and he pointed to a hill and said, See that hill over there? I once shot and killed a man on that hill. What was the man's name? The other guy asked. Hell I don't know, Fago replied. I wasn't taking no senses. I was there to kill the man. Baca biographer Kyle Crichton said, quote, The life of El Fago Baca makes Billy the Kid look like a piker. Another guy, Harvey Ferguson, called El Fago, quote, a knight errant from the romantic point of view, if ever the six shooter West produced one. Are these guys laying it on a bit thick? Hell yeah, they are. Did El Fago exaggerate his actions? You'd have to have the faith of a child to think that he didn't. But who cares? All those guys I mentioned in the intro, guys like Wide and Bill Hickok, they did the same thing. Was El Fago balking one tough ass son of a bitch? You betcha. I think he himself summed up his life the best in a 1936 interview when he said, quote, I never wanted to kill anybody, but if a man had it in his mind to kill me, I made it my business to get to him first. Oh, and one last thing I keep forgetting. We never touched on why Fago never got hit by any of those bullets that were getting pumped into that little shack. Whether it was 400 or 4,000 bullets, you'd think at least one of them would have drawn blood. Well, as it turns out, there was a plaster statue of the Nuestra, Sonora, Donna Anna, and that Hakal with El Fago. And she didn't catch an area bullet either. Many suspect that the Sonora was looking over Baca, keeping him safe. Now that sounds nice, but the truth is the floor of the Hakal was a good 14 inches lower than ground level. El Fago simply flattened himself during the heaviest of the firing and the bullet snapped harmlessly above him. As previously mentioned, there was a Disney TV series called The Nine Lives of El Fago Baca. I'm really curious to see if any of y'all have seen it. I looked up showings online and I couldn't find anywhere where it's still in rotation, but you can watch a lot of it on YouTube. And it's kind of corny, but I mean, it's better than most of the crap on TV nowadays. And it stars the late great Robert Loggia as El Fago. Y'all might remember Loggia as the general from Independence Day, from that movie big when he was dancing on that giant piano with Tom Hanks. Or, my absolute favorite role of his, the frightening old school gangster Feech LaManna in The Sopranos. Now, Robert Loja, real name Salvatore, is not Hispanic. This dude's Italian AF. Sicilian, actually. But it is crazy going through his acting credits and seeing how many times he was cast as a Hispanic or Latino character. I'm guessing back in the 50s or 60s, they figured if they got somebody with a vowel at the end of their name, it was close enough. How crazy was it, man, the way they cast uh ethnic people back in those days? My favorite is John Wayne playing as Genghis Khan. And yes, I do still pronounce it Genghis, okay? Only douchebags and guys named Lawrence pronounce it Genghis. Fun fact, the town of Cerritos, New Mexico, is where Disney's The Nine Lies of El Fago Baca was filmed. It was also a stand-in for the town of Lincoln in Young Guns 1. Hmm, so there you go. Speaking of Young Guns 1, I've been reading up a lot on old Doc Scarlock lately. So please stay tuned. Another Young guns theme episode is on the way. Well, two, actually, because I will be revisiting Mr. Brushy, Bill Roberts, soon. And, of course, we got Chief Joseph coming up next. For research on this episode, I relied on several articles you can find in the show notes. The one I mentioned by Robert DeRee, a couple from True West Magazine, Legends of America, and a wonderful lecture I found on YouTube titled, El Fago Baca, A Very Brave Man Who Made a Difference as presented by Dr. Joe Sweeney. Once again, you can find all this in the show notes. Thank you all so, so much for listening. And I want to give a special shout out to those of you who are supporting me on Patreon. Y'all basically cover my monthly nut as far as this podcast goes, so I really appreciate that. I don't post anything on Patreon anymore, so those of you that are still there are strictly doing it out of support. So Tony, Michael, Patricia, Jamie, Alphonse, Everett, Momo, Prete, Gabriel, Joshua, and Pat, Thank you so very much. I'd also like to give a shout out to a guy named Dwight Edelman and his lovely wife Jennifer, up there in the Texas Panhandle. Poor Dwight, man, uh <sighs> Jennifer tells me he was born with a condition known as a microphallus. Now, microphallus or micropenis is defined as a penis that, when fully stretched or erect, is two and a half inches or less. It doesn't matter though, the important thing is Dwight Edelman has not let this horrible, horrible condition of having a tiny baby penis slow him down any. Okay? Just like El Fago Baca, he rises above it. Well, I mean, you know, he he kind of rises above it. He rises, but you just really can't tell. Uh, no, I'm joking. Thanks for listening, Dwight and Jennifer. Y'all stay safe up there. As far as I know, Dwight, you have a very massive giant cock. Okay. Moving forward, I'd also like to give shout-outs to Steve K., Ethan C., Joshua R., Ethan L., Danny Simmons, Justin Smith, Krista Burke, Corey Hughes, Dwayne, Tom Detroit out there running those damn streets, Joe Ross, Tim Cinnamon, Cinnamon, Cinnamon with an S, we've got Cinnamon coming to the main stage, Eric Simpson, Joshua T, can't pronounce your last name, bro, and everybody else. Sorry if I forgot to mention you, but thank you for continuing to listen to my ignorant ass. If you're new to Bloody Beaver's Wild West Extravaganza, please subscribe wherever you're listening. And head on over to bloodybeaver.com for more content. While you're there, hit that contact button and send me an email. Or let your voice be heard and send me a voicemail. Those are always fun. Or you can simply contact me at bloodybeaverpodcast at gmail.com. Please share this podcast with somebody. And it's never been easier. Look, if you go to my website, there's an embedded audio player. You can't miss it. It's right there. It says latest episode and has a big play button. Right above that button, you'll see the word share. I believe if you click on it, it gives you links to share on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and I forget what else. So share it. And please, those of you listening on YouTube, also subscribe or follow me on your preferred podcast app. If you've got a smartphone, there's an app on there where you can find Bloody Beef a podcast. Go to my website and you're going to see a whole bunch of different ways you can listen to it. I know a lot of other podcasters like to ask for ratings and reviews. I don't care about any of that. If you really want to help, you can subscribe on a podcast app and, of course, uh, tell other people about this podcast. All right, y'all, that's all I got for this episode. Thanks again. Please keep the emails, comments, and suggestions coming. Try not to castrate anyone this week. And if you have to punch somebody in the face like El Fago Baca suggested, don't be too surprised if they punch your ass right back. Adios.